You're listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Episode 21, How Do Mixed Status Families Cope with Politics, Racism, and Precarity? I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this is Latin Experts. And today, as a part of our series featuring the Latino Research Institute, I'm excited to talk with Dr. Carmen R. Valdez, Associate Professor of Population Health, Chief of Community Engagement and Health Equity, and Director of Community-Driven Initiatives at the Dell Medical School here at UT, where she's also a Latino Research Institute affiliate. Valdez is a community-based participatory researcher with a special interest in mental health promotion and intervention with Latinx immigrant families. She's also interested in understanding the role of social policy, neighborhood, and family factors on immigrant health. Today, we're going to discuss Dr. Valdez's research on mixed status families, or families where some of its members are citizens, some hold various legal papers, and or others are undocumented. One of these studies published last year in the journal Family Process looked at how Mexican immigrant adults and their children reacted emotionally to the events leading to the 2016 election. Some of her other research involves longitudinal explorations of mixed-status families thriving in spite of all the barriers and discrimination they face. And I'm especially excited uh, to talk with her today because we've known each other for quite a long time as we were both on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin, and then we escaped to the sunshine. So Dr. Carmen Valdez, welcome to Latin Experts. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and to be here with you, especially. Well, I am thrilled to have this conversation and learn a little bit more about your research. But I want to just start out and I want to ask you uh, how, how it is you got affiliated with the Latino Research Institute and, and what your relationship is to the Institute. Yes, I became affiliated in 2018 when the director of the program, Deborah Parra Medina, invited me to be involved, um, especially because my research is focused on population health and in particular about how to increase access to services and to capture the health of Latinos. My role in the Latino Research Institute, I participate in two different groups. One is called Bridging Gaps, and it's focused on interventions and programs for Latinx individuals and communities. And the other one has a specific focus on COVID. And so some of my research, as many, many of us have had to pivot to look at the impact of COVID on Latinx communities and also potential interventions. And so you used a term, and it's, I think, also built into your title, but I realize some people may not have a clear sense of what that is, which is population health. Can you just tell us what that term means? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and that's a good point. I think most people understand what public health means, which you know, public health looks at policies that affect 
society at large, such as, for example, a smoking ban or wearing a seatbelt and the impact that has on society at large. Population health is one step below that. So we focus not only on large-scale policies, but we focus also on specific programs that can improve the health and drivers of health for specific communities. So we're not focused on the individual only, as might be the case in, you know, if if you were a psychologist, which I am um, a psychologist by training, and it's also not large-scale policy efforts as in public health, but more specific programs and interventions that can help improve people's lives so that they can thrive and be healthy. That's totally helpful because I realized as you were talking, I really didn't know that. I thought I was just asking that for the audience, but I I also didn't know. So thank you uh, for explaining that. And so moving into this discussion of mixed status families, why is it important to study mixed status Latinx families? I mean, are their experiences notably different from families who all share the same status? Yes, their experiences are similar and are different. I think all immigrant families share the hope and the promise of a better future so that children can thrive, do well, advance and experience the type of social mobility that perhaps their parents were not able to experience in their country of origin. So all families have that optimism and hope and sense of resilience. However, when you have mixed status families, there are issues within the family, but also from society that can make it more difficult for people to have agency in their lives. And so, for example, you might have in a mixed status family, you might have some individuals who were born in the U.S. and therefore are U.S. citizens, others who were not. In the most typical case, the parents do not have citizenship. And one of and, and in terms of the children, maybe one does and another one doesn't. And depending on which one is older, which one is younger, there may be some dynamics in, within the family that make it more complicated. For example, if an older sibling is undocumented, but a younger one does have documents because of their citizenship or naturalization, then you might see where the older sibling who developmentally is supposed to be more independent, more autonomous, may be more interdependent than the younger sibling. And so that may create a power imbalance within the family, but then also a demoralization of that one sibling who is growing up in a more limited environment than the rest of the family. Mm, That's fascinating. Yeah, go ahead. And the other point is that it's not just the individual in the family who is undocumented that is impacted. It really affects the whole family. I have done interviews, countless interviews with U.S.-born siblings of undocumented children who worry all the time about their family, whether the family will always be together or not. And those U.S.-born children are also less likely to benefit from programs that they are entitled to because their parents are afraid of exposing other family member status. So 
a whole array of things that make this family dynamic super complicated and uh, totally makes sense why it's a, a very unique situation. So this particular study that I want to talk to you about, I guess, I mean, I find it fascinating and I'm interested why you and your colleagues were interested in studying how mixed family, mixed status families collectively and individually dealt with their emotions around the 2016 election. So I'm interested in why you wanted to do it, but then also what did you discover? Yeah, well, I have been conducting a study for 11 years now. Uh, Wow, I actually had to look at the year to see, because we started in 2010 conducting focus groups in Phoenix where we were, where I was an investigator on a project that focused on schools and families. And so Arizona passed Senate Bill 1070 in 2010, which was at the time the most restrictive piece of state legislation to restrict immigration and also to deport individuals from the state. So we started hearing from families about what types of workarounds they were devising So instead of dropping off their kids at school, they would have a family member who was a citizen drop off the kids at school. And so I I became very interested in, in how they made meaning of what was happening, which to us is a news story, but to them, it's very much personal. It's about their lives and their livelihood. And so I started a, a project that followed five families from those original focus groups followed them over the years. I met them in their home, spent numbers of hours talking to them about their lives, about what they thought, what was happening. And in 2015 or so, I felt like I had enough data, uh, you know, what we call saturation, enough data to understand the impact of SB 1070. But then the 2016 election came up And we started hearing messages from politicians about Mexicans and immigrants as uh, being criminals and pretty much the whole election centered around immigration and who could have the hardest line around immigration. And so families naturally started talking about that, about who they thought was going to win, what would happen if Trump were to win or if. Clinton were to win, what would happen to them personally, but then also to other immigrant families? So in Arizona, I mean, is such an interesting context, not just for SB 1070, uh, of course, but much earlier, I'm thinking about the infamous Chandler raids in the 1990s in Chandler, Arizona. And, And we often think of immigration raids as connected with ICE and under the George W. Bush administration, but these things were happening also under Clinton in the 1990s. And then you can look to 2004, I believe it was, with the Proposition 200, which was modeled after California's Proposition 187, both of which designed to take healthcare and access to all public services away. Um, And then I think there was one point where in one year, there was something like 147 anti-immigrant bills in the Arizona state legislature, not all of them passed, but they were all introduced. And so thinking about that context in the longer form too, is really interesting and really solidifies why Arizona is so important. But you weren't just interested sort of in the 
negative things, you were also interested in how people thrive. And so I, I wonder if you could talk about that idea of, of thriving and how, how people were thriving even in these horrible times. Yeah, definitely. These are families that are significantly impacted in their day-to-day lives. And it's really evident how many of the dreams and hopes that they have to curtail or they have to delay. Many of their plans are delayed because of fear. So it is definitely the case that policy is intended to restrict people's free movement in society in that by doing so, that they will choose to self-deport or leave the state or go back to their country of origin. But what I found is that is often not the case. People stay and they find ways to live their lives in spite of being in a restrictive environment. And just to give you an example, so when E-Verify was passed, It made it more difficult for employers to hire um, undocumented immigrants. But it doesn't mean that people went hungry and didn't work. It meant that they found different ways of finding employment, whether it's by getting an ID, a a non-valid ID, or by being paid cash, or by creating more demand for their work. So by standing at a Walmart parking lot as a day laborer, they're creating more demand for their work or they start their own business. And so people always find ways um, to continue pursuing their goals and their plans for their personal goals or their family goals. And they find ways to do that. And so these young adults who are undocumented and their U.S. born siblings and their parents, they continue to live their lives and they find ways to experience joy, to experience fulfillment, to have access to capital and to create capital that brings them stability. And that is a very important part of the conversation because often we focus on the negative and the precarity, but we don't consider how creative people can be in thriving. And what an amazing lesson to learn about how people are resilient and flexible and how they adapt to difficult, extremely difficult situations to do well. Yeah, I I, I love that. And not to take away from any of the impacts, of course, as you're saying, but just to remind people that, of course, People are creative, resilient, and scrappy. (laughs) People will figure out their way. Having all that said, to kind of return to the study, thinking about the emotions in the 2016 election and the impacts of SB 1070, uh, uh, were there different ways between, say, the siblings with citizenship and the undocumented parents or the undocumented siblings, how, how they were experiencing or dealing with their emotions around the election? Yes. And so that was a very interesting finding that we had. When we interviewed undocumented parents and siblings, many of them chose to disconnect themselves from what was being said on the news, what was being reported, what politicians were saying. And we were at first 
taken aback by that because we felt like they have a skin in the game and that perhaps they would be the opposite, that they would be hypervigilant about it or very much attuned to what was happening. But on the other hand, we found that the U.S.-born siblings were much more attuned to what was happening. And what we think the process is, is that if you're too close to it, it can literally consume you. And so you choose to not talk about it. You choose to not be connected to it too much. Whereas, and I think for the U.S.-born siblings who wouldn't necessarily be impacted personally, although that's not necessarily the case because obviously if something happens to your sibling, that has a significant impact. But if you as a person are not the target, you still worry about what might happen to your family. And so you're more likely, or in this case, these youth knew a lot more about what was happening, had more opinions about what was happening, than their undocumented siblings, which was very interesting. And I don't think we should pathologize the fact that the undocumented siblings were more disconnected from what was happening, because I think quite the opposite. It's a way of taking care of oneself. And so we need to explore that a little bit more, but we also need to honor it. Yeah, I mean, I think even for those of us in very privileged positions, especially the last year and a half, but even since 2016, the political environment has taken lots of us away from the news. And so there should be no judgment for folks in very precarious situations. Um, Did you happen to follow up the study before or around the 2020 election? Yes. So we're still collecting data and definitely have data from the parents and from youth about uh, their perceptions of the 2020 election. And I also feel like there's some fatigue sinking in and people are fatigue and also skepticism, right? Like sometimes people talk about politics as how it affects their lives. And then they also just grow weary of letting politics intrude in their lives. And so families who spoke about the 2020 election were relieved, to say the least, that many of the policies that seemed like were being terminated by the Trump administration, like DACA, for example, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that was under threat of termination under the Trump administration. And so there was relief that now there was the promise of a a formalization of that. But at the same time, the social discourse around immigration continues to be very harsh, very negative, and uh, restrictive. And so I think what many immigrant mixed status families are seeing is like a roller coaster of sometimes it seems like things are going to get better and then it doesn't, or there's a court um, that intervenes and that either helps or hurts what they're hoping for. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I want to just return to something. We only have a a few minutes left, but I I want to return to something you said earlier. You used the word consume, that the kind of the the gravity of it can be, you know, can consume one. And 
I was thinking about what are the health implications of this, meaning, well, one way to ask the question is, what could health practitioners or health researchers take from your work based on this? That's an excellent question, Karma. One of the lessons of this work is that the experience of being in a mixed status family can be a very traumatic experience. And the trauma may be actual events, such as losing a parent to deportation, but in most cases is anticipating the loss of a family member. And that is something that happens from day one. Not because an infant understands that this can happen, but because they experience the uncertainty and the anxiety of other family members from day one. In fact, I've often spoken with adolescents who, for one reason or another, or college age young adults whose status has been adjusted, maybe because they were their family was a victim of a crime, and so they applied for a U visa, which allowed them to adjust their status. And they say that they will never shake off the experience of being undocumented, that that's an identity that follows you for the rest of your life. And so I think we need trauma-informed services for children and these families or for families. We also need family-level interventions. One of the things that we haven't really talked about here is that often youth don't know that they are undocumented until they are in that transition age until they start applying for college or they get to an age where they can apply, try to secure a driver's license, open a bank account, because that's the first time that they need a social security number. And parents want to protect their children. And so they don't tell them, they don't disclose that they are undocumented until they're 16, 17, or 18. And so there's a lot of secrecy in the family and a lot of unspoken words, even when children do know, often families choose not to talk about it because they're afraid that by talking about it, it will put more of a burden on the child. And so just as you know, policy doesn't need to change for the individual, it needs to change for the whole family, the same interventions are not going to be beneficial for the individual unless they also include family issues. And then I think uh, another implication for health, it's just the, the type of ambivalence that results from being an, in a vulnerable, in a legally vulnerable situation. So these are children who experience higher levels of stress, where their sleep may be disturbed, their appetite may be disturbed, who at an older age may experience cardiovascular disease at higher rates than the rest of the population. So every imaginable impact that we can associate with prolonged and chronic stress is going to affect health. Well, I don't mean to leave it on that note, although I think what you've said is very, very valuable for so many people to hear, but we are at the end of our time. So I just want to thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Carmen Valdez. Thank you, Dr. Karma Chavez. <laughs> Again, our guest today was Dr. Carmen Valdez, Associate Professor of Population Health at Dell Medical. And I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this has been Latin Experts. 
Hi all, this is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.